Over a century ago, the uh, liberal German theologian Adolf van Harnack summed up what he thought was the core of the Christian faith uh, in a book that was titled, What is Christianity? And he summed it up by saying that it was the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now, let me just be clear from the outset that that is not the core of the Christian faith. The core of the Christian faith, rather, is what we find in a place like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, those things that Paul delivered as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the core and heart of the Christian message. Moreover, depending on how one understands the meaning of Van Harnack's terms, there is a sense in which the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is true. There's a sense also in which it is false. Now, those things are true in the Acts 17 sense. Acts 17, Paul was preaching to the Athenians at the Areopagus, and he said in Acts 17, 28, and 29, that in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now in that sense, the sense of having been created by God and made in his image, we are the children of God. No question about it. Similarly, in that same sermon to the Athenians, Paul said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Acts 17, 26. In other words, from one man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, God made us all. We are all brothers and sisters in that we are all related, if you trace it far enough back. And so in one sense, though certainly not the essence of Christianity, the terms used by Van Harnack are correct. In the, in the creational sense, God is the father of us all. In the fact that you can trace all of our lineages back to Adam and Eve, we are all brothers and sisters. But in another sense... Van Harnack's terms were very, very wrong. Because though we are created by God in his image, some people are sons of God, in the sense of John 1, 12, where we're told that as many as received Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. But those who do not receive Jesus Christ are part of a different family. They are of their father, the devil. And thus, spiritually speaking, there are two families in the world. To use the language of Genesis 3 that we've seen in the past couple of weeks, there is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and two distinct spiritual lineages there. And that means, then, that the universal brotherhood of man is not so universal after all. All who are in Christ share a spiritual brotherhood, and those outside of Christ, do not share that brotherhood, but rather are at enmity with us. As one writer truly expressed it, apart from redemption through Christ, human brotherhood is the brotherhood of Cain and Abel. And it is to the history of that brotherhood that we will turn our attention this morning, the brotherhood of Cain and Abel. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, this morning we'll be in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. 
Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from Your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we will do so under uh, three main headings. First, a better sacrifice. Second, master your sin. And thirdly, a dead man speaks. A better sacrifice. Master your sin. A dead man speaks. And so first, in the chapter, we see the birth of the first child into the world, the birth of Cain. He was born, no doubt, in such a way that his mother's pains were greatly multiplied according to the terms of the punishment given in chapter 3, verse 16. And notice Eve's words where she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Her words could be more literally translated as, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Now, We should see here both the faith of Eve and also her evident confusion. 
On the one hand, it seems like she was looking back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. seems that she may well have been thinking that this son that was born to her was the seed of the woman, the promised one who would crush the serpent's head. It seems that Eve had faith that this was going to happen. It seems that she thought this might be it. If she thought that Cain was the serpent slayer, however... She was very much mistaken. And even if we were to take her words as commonly translated in our English versions, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, even if we take it that way, even there she is acknowledging the Lord's help in what had occurred, that it's difficult giving birth to children, and the Lord had helped her in bringing this child into the world. Despite the fact that Eve led the way into sin, Nevertheless, evidence here in the early portion of chapter 4 does suggest that even after her fall, Eve was looking to the Lord and was trusting in Him. She seems to have been a woman of faith, despite her sin. Her second son, as we know, was Abel. And so here we have the first relationship of brothers. Now, the sibling relationship is unique among the relationships of the world. And having a brother myself, I might go further and ponder whether the relationship between two brothers, two men born of the same parents, is a, is a unique subset even among the sibling relationships. In the wisdom that the Lord gave him, Solomon said, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. For those of you who have had brothers, the relationship can, of course, be very close. It can be very supportive. It can be very loving. But in a fallen world as this one is, it can be very much otherwise as well. And Genesis 4 relates a history of brothers that is very much otherwise, very much a relationship of hatred and not of love. And thus, here in Genesis 4, we have an illustration of the devastation which the fall into sin has brought to human relationships. Human relationships now are not good as they once were because sin has intervened in the hearts of men and rendered us wicked in our dispositions to each other. We find in verse 2 their respective occupations when they came of age to fill their occupations. Cain is a tiller of the ground. Abel is a keeper of of the flock, and in time they both bring the produce of their labors to the Lord. Cain therefore brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. Now, notice what we find though in verses 4 and 5 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And we're not told the specific manner in which this was done, but it seems that the Lord made it clear by some way or another that he had regard for Abel and his sacrifice, but not for Cain and his sacrifice. Because as the subsequent narrative makes clear, Cain certainly knew that his offering was not acceptable to the Lord. That's why he becomes angry about it, because he knows that the Lord had not received his sacrifice. Now let's pause for a moment to consider why it was that the Lord had regard for Abel and not for Cain. The text is 
not explicit about this, but it is worth noticing that the text doesn't simply say that the Lord had regard for Abel's sacrifice. It said that the Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. And likewise, the text doesn't simply say that the Lord had no regard for Cain's sacrifice, but that he had no regard for Cain and his sacrifice. In both cases, the person is mentioned first. Secondly, the sacrifice. And I would suggest that the, re- the reason for the Lord's regard for Abel and his sacrifice and his disregard for Cain and his sacrifice has not only to do with the material which they brought for the sacrifice, but also with the person and the character of the worshiper. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, presenting an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, as Cain did. This was even later commanded in the law. Leviticus chapter 2, there's the law of the, the grain offerings, and Lord willing, as we'll see tonight in Leviticus 23, there's the, the offering of the, of the first fruits. So there's nothing inherently wrong with offering to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. But notice the difference in the way that the offerings are described. Cain's offering is simply described there in verse 3 as an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. This kind of run-of-the-mill stuff, an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Here's the stuff, let's haul it in, bring it to the Lord. But Abel's offering is described in verse 4 as being the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. Cain is just kind of, his description is run-of-the-mill kind of stuff, but Abel is bringing the firstlings and their fat portions. Abel was giving the best. And also, even though there's no inherent uh, sin in offering a grain offering, nevertheless, Abel's offering also more perfectly prefigured the sacrifice of Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in our our unison reading from Hebrews 11.4 this morning, we read that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And thus, Hebrews 11 directs us to something deeper than simply the outward gift. It directs us to the disposition of the heart. It was by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice. His sacrifice was an outward manifestation of what was in his heart. Abel was a man of faith, and he offered his best. And as we said, his sacrifice more particularly foreshadowed Christ. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering because Abel brought his sacrifice in faith to the Lord and with great reverence was bringing his best. But the Lord, on the other hand, had no regard for Cain and his offering. Cain's heart was not right before the Lord. Again, the description given of Cain's sacrifice seems like it was just just stuff that he grew out of the ground. There's no indication given that this was his first or that this was his best or anything of that nature. And in that, I think we see a revelation of Cain's heart as well. That his heart was not devoted to the Lord. And thus the Lord looks not only on the external actions, but also on the heart. Now, in saying that, let's understand, external actions are important. But so is the heart which lies behind the actions. 
if the external actions are inherently sinful in themselves, then it's, it's clear enough what the character of the person is who is doing those actions. However, we need to notice that sometimes the ungodly actually perform external actions that can appear to be godly, right? One writer said, Cain the impious made an offering, yet he did not offer it to false gods, but to the one true God, nor to many gods, but to the one. But Cain did not make his offering from faith and heartfelt gratitude as Abel did. Rather, his worship was merely a custom he had learned from his father, or else was done just for show. Now, as we've said, the, the difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's gave some indication of the, the different dispositions of their heart, but we should notice that Cain actually did bring a sacrifice, and he sacrificed to the one true God. That is in his credit, right? But even still, his heart was not right. Again, external actions don't always reveal the full picture. Likewise today, it can be sometimes difficult to tell whether one is a true believer simply based on external actions. Obviously, if there is no fruit of the Spirit at all and no good works at all, we may well question whether someone is a believer. But what if the good works are there? Or at least the good works appear to be there? Or are at least there to some extent? What if the worship of God is there? Or at least the worship of God appears to be there? What if it looks like there are good works and the true worship of God, but the heart is not in it? Who can tell? Well, ultimately, God can tell. And we can rest assured that God does tell and that God will judge and judge rightly. The Lord sees when saving faith is present in the heart and when it is not. You can fool a lot of people. You might even fool yourself. You might be self-deceived. But the Lord sees the heart and the Lord will judge accordingly. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel obtained this testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. Again, evidently, the Lord made it clear by some way or another that Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to him. We don't know if it was fire coming down out of heaven to consume uh, the firstlings of the flock or what it was, but the Lord made it clear. There was testimony that was given, and Cain knew this. That's what upset him. And this brings us to our second point, which is master your sin. Because Cain knew that his sacrifice was not accepted by the Lord and that Abel's was, that's why we find in verse 5 that he becomes angry and that his countenance falls. And why was he angry? Well, he was angry because God approved of his brother and not of him and his sacrifice. He became angry because his brother was righteous and he was not. And this anger, this jealousy led on to even greater evil. One writer said that this is an example of what is often said, that one sin begets another, just as Cain's presumption and unbelief gives birth to envy and hatred against his brother. Envy begets hypocrisy. Hypocrisy begets blindness. Excusing one's sin comes after blindness, and despair follows after that. 
And that was the direction that Cain's sin took him. And that is a terrible shame. Because the Lord spoke to Cain about this in verses 6 and 7 and called him to repentance. He said, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The picture here is that sin has set its desire for Cain. That is, it had set its desire to master him, to overpower him and command him. It's like a wild animal crouching at the door, ready to pounce. Sin had set its desire on usurping Cain and taking him over and seeking to rule him. And the Lord said to Cain that he must not be mastered by his sin, but that he must master it. That is, he must exercise authority over sin so as to keep himself from being mastered by him. He must exert discipline and self-control, depending not on himself and his own strength, but on the grace of God and the promise that is given that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent. But this is not what Cain did, was it? He didn't do that. Cain instead continued in his anger. He gave way to envy, eventually to hatred, finally to murder. And why? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3.12 that this was because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And there is an important application here for us, and that is this, that when we are confronted with our sin, we need to capitalize on the opportunity that is presented to us by repenting. Anytime we are confronted with our sin, we are at a crossroads. And at that crossroads, we will either repent or not. Repentance is hard. Repentance always requires us to humble ourselves before God. Sometimes it requires us to humble ourselves before man as well. Your natural pride, my natural pride, kick against this kind of humility. Naturally, we revolt against this kind of humility. We act as if we would prefer to suffer horrible consequences rather than simply confess that we were wrong, seek forgiveness, and turn away from evil. Johannes Voss was a Presbyterian missionary to China in the 1930s and early 40s before he was expelled by the Japanese in 1941. And he described how he had once refused to baptize a Chinese convert until that professed convert could give proof that he had genuinely turned away from idolatry. And in Voss's words, as he refused baptism to this man until he could do that, Voss said, the convert became violently angry cursed the name of Jesus Christ. His loss of faith, loss of face in being refused immediate baptism caused him to become bitterly opposed to Christianity. And, as far as known, he never repented. Now the case that Voss described may be an extreme case, but you can see the point. People get angry, people get prideful and bitter when they are confronted with their sin. This happens, and when it does happen, people can harden themselves. Instead of seizing on the opportunity before them to do what is right, this man had the opportunity. Am I going to continue on in idolatry, or am I going to shut myself off from idolatry and follow after Jesus Christ and demonstrate that I'm a true follower of Christ? 
He was at a crossroads. And what did he do? He hardened himself, cursed Christ, and uh, at least as far as Voss knew, he never repented. This is the crossroads that we stand at when we're confronted with sin. So often, instead of seizing the opportunity that is before them to do what is right, people instead dig in their heels and become stubborn. And then if the opportunity for repentance is pushed aside, then what can happen is that they give themselves over to other sins, potentially more egregious sins. And this, as we will see, is exactly what Cain did. And so, friends, as hard and as humbling as it is when you are confronted with your sin, whether it be conviction that comes in your conscience as you're reflecting on your own life and actions, or whether this is conviction that comes as you're reading the Bible, or conviction that comes as you're hearing the Scriptures preached and taught, or whether it be conviction that is brought to you by conversation with a brother or sister as they admonish you and entreat you, whatever the situation If you're convicted of sin based on the word of God, then you need to humble yourself and you need to repent. If you're in that situation, sin is crouching at the door. It has set its desire for you. It wants to master you, but instead you must master it. And this is not to imply that you have the uh, within yourself the natural willpower to do so or that in and of yourself you can overcome sin and temptation, but this is to teach you that you are responsible to master it. And that if you don't master it, it will master you. And if it does master you, it will devastate you, as it devastated Cain. The fact of the matter is that we're all going to be slaves to something, either slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. And this is why Paul says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom uh, whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience? resulting in righteousness. And the only way to overcome sin and its mastery, the only way to master your sin, is to come to Christ, to believe in him who died for sinners and rose again, and to seek by his grace so that you may turn away from your sin. You cannot and will never master sin on your own. And so turn to Christ, receive new life, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then by the Spirit, in the Spirit's power, you will be able to put to death your sin and you will live. Otherwise, you will die. If you have more questions about what this means to repent and believe in Christ and receive new life from the Spirit, you can come and talk to me. After the service, you can talk to another Christian whom you know. Now let's, let's look back to the text here of Genesis 4. We find next the murder in verse 8. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now the text doesn't tell us what exactly it was that Cain told Abel, but whatever it was, his actions spoke much more loudly than his words. When they were in the field together, Cain killed his brother. This is the first murder, the first death of a human in the history of the world. And the Lord then asked Cain concerning the whereabouts of his brother Abel. And just like the Lord didn't need information 
when he came to Adam and Eve in the garden and asked, where are you? Even so here, the Lord is not seeking information when he says, where is Abel your brother? Just like when he came to Adam, the Lord approached Cain and questioned him, giving him a chance to come to confession and repentance. And given that opportunity, notice how Cain responded even worse than his father Adam had done back in chapter 3. Cain responded first with an outright lie. I do not know. He killed him out in the field. He knew where he was, but he says, I do not know. And then he added those, those famous words, that famous question, am I my brother's keeper? It's as if he were saying, am I responsible for him? Am I the one who has to look out for my brother? Just how sassy and how irreverent can you get? What a way to speak to the Lord. What a way for Cain to respond about his brother just a little while after he had murdered him. Earlier, his sin was crouching at the door. By now, it's clear that sin was dominating his life because he had refused to master the sin which was crouching at his door. And in what follows, verses 10 through 12, we see how the Lord tells Cain that his brother's blood is crying out to the Lord from the ground, and the Lord pronounces judgment against Cain for the sin of of murder. And the judgment is that Cain is cursed from the ground, the ground which had opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood. And again, notice here that Cain is cursed explicitly and personally in a way that Adam and Eve were not cursed back in Genesis 3. Martin Luther said, Adam bears the curse placed on the earth, but not a curse placed on his person. For from his descendants, Christ was to be born. But Cain forfeited this glory through his sin. His person is cursed, and he is told, Cursed are you. And the practical effect of this for Cain was that the ground would not yield its strength to him. The productive earth would not yield its produce for him. He would instead have to wander about the earth. And yet notice in Cain's response that follows that all he seems to be concerned with is just the punishment. There's no plea for forgiveness. There's no confession of wrong, no remorse for uh, the murder of his brother. Again, he comes off worse than Adam and Eve. He's just upset about the consequences. He rightly understands that he'll be driven from the face of the ground. It's a serious punishment for a farmer. He is evidently worried about being cut off from the face of God. Now, certainly he's not going to be cut off from God's all-seeing eyes or God's all-knowing wisdom or from God's almighty power, but he was going to be cut off from the presence of the Lord in the sense of fellowship and blessing. And this may mean that his punishment was, in a sense, a form of excommunication in addition to exile from his family. It was thought by some that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt there with the cherubim who were guarding the way back to the tree of life and that this was the place at which Adam and Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to the Lord was, was right there kind of at the gateway to Eden, as it were. Indeed, chapter 3, verse 24 can be translated as to say that he dwelt, that is, the Lord dwelt over uh, or between the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And this could be a part of Cain's punishment, is that he's being cut off from what was then the public worship 
of God and the place where the token of God's presence was, that he's being cast out from there as a wanderer. And so Cain is, is cut off from the face of the Lord. He's also worried that he will be killed. He has a guilty conscience, fears that he would be killed because he himself had killed. Proverbs tells us that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. The righteous is as bold as a lion. Cain's just worried that someone is going to kill him. Now, given the data of what we find in chapter 4, verse 25, and chapter 5, verse 3, some have thought that the time at which Cain killed Abel may have been uh, when Adam was 130 years old. Because if you uh, notice there in uh, chapter 4, verse 25, when, when Seth is born, uh, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And if you look down to Genesis 5.3, we find that it is when Adam is 130 years old that Seth was born. And so some have thought that, that the murder took place around about then. Now, we can't obviously be certain of that, but evidence may slightly point in that direction. And if indeed that is the case, it's possible that Cain had multiple brothers and sisters, perhaps even many nieces and nephews by the time that he murdered Abel. In other words, just because Moses has only told us so far about four people, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, that's no proof that those are the only four people on the face of the earth at this point. According to the words of Genesis 5-4, Adam had other sons and daughters other than Cain, Abel, and Seth, and he may have had some others before Seth was born. And it's even possible that children of those children may have been born to them by this point. All of that is to say that by the time Cain murdered Abel, there, have been, there may have been a number of people on the face of the earth, and his fear of being killed by someone else, one of his brothers or sisters, one of his nieces or nephews, may have been no baseless fear. And yet, the Lord is merciful to Cain. He allows Cain to live, and he pronounces, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. He's... Uh, going to allow Cain to live, preserve his life. And then in verse 14, we read that the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, as the New American Standard translates it, or ESV says, uh, set a mark upon Cain. I would lean toward taking it in the, uh, the sense given uh, by the New American Standard that the Lord uh, performed some kind of, of miracle there to, to demonstrate to Cain that he was going to allow him to live and take this sevenfold vengeance upon anyone who killed him. Uh, but one way or the other, the Lord uh, confirms this, this word to Cain, and Cain goes off away from the presence of the Lord, settles in the land of Nod, which means the land of wandering, east of Eden. So much for Cain. He is a cursed man. He was of the evil one and a murderer. We learn here that if we don't come to Christ to have our sins dealt with through faith and repentance, culminating in forgiveness and reconciliation with God and then the subsequent mortification of our sin, putting it to death, this is where we'll end up, like Cain. Now, our sin may be, may be different from him, but we'll be cast out from the presence and the fellowship of God. 
I think it was John Owen who said, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. And indeed, it will. Now we'll speak more, Lord willing, of Cain and his descendants next week. But now let's come to our third point, which is a dead man speaks. Because Abel, although he was murdered, although he is dead, still speaks. That's what Hebrews 11.4 says. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel still speaks. What does he say in his speaking? Well, he proclaims to us that it is faith that makes a man acceptable to God because he brought his sacrifice in faith. He proclaims to us that it is by faith that righteousness comes. He proclaims to us that the faith which justifies before God will be known by its fruit. True faith will be active in good works. True faith will be evident by those good works. It will be known. Because he had faith, he offered God a better sacrifice, and God testified about his gifts. God demonstrated that he was pleased with Abel and his sacrifice. And since Abel still speaks, even though he is dead, let's listen to what he says. Let's listen, not in the sense of just hearing and letting the words go from one ear and out the other, but let's listen in the sense of actually paying attention and taking heed to what he says. In other words, let's come to God in true faith, trusting the truth of his word and all that he has made known to us about himself, about the way of salvation, and what he requires of us as his people. And then let us submit ourselves to that truth, acknowledging ourselves as God's creatures Acknowledging God as our sovereign Lord and coming to him in faith for salvation. And in doing so, we must acknowledge that the only reason why we can do so is because of the truth of what our brother Jeff read for us from Hebrews 12:24. For there in Hebrews 12:24 we read of the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, we see in Genesis 4 that the blood of Abel cried out to the Lord from the ground. And the implication, I think, is that the blood was crying out to be avenged, crying out for judgment against the murderer. The blood of Jesus, on the other hand, speaks better than that. The blood of Jesus speaks not against the guilty, but for the guilty, that they might be forgiven. And this is why Paul says in Romans 3, 24 and 25, he speaks of being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that the new covenant is ratified. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that the wrath of God against our sins is taken away. Rather than calling for our judgment and calling for our punishment, the blood of Jesus speaks better words than the blood of Abel because the blood of Jesus signifies that the punishment for the guilty has already occurred. The punishment for the guilty has already been paid by Jesus. And, in fact, that's what we proclaim this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper. We come and proclaim that Jesus died and that he shed his blood for our forgiveness and that we are the recipients of the benefits of his death, that we have 
fellowship in the benefits of the mercy and grace of the gospel because the body of Jesus was given for us and his blood was poured out on the cross for us. The blood of Jesus truly does speak better than the blood of Abel. And so let's reflect on this this morning as we come to the Lord's table and let's rejoice in this this morning that the blood of Jesus speaks for the guilty. We might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that we would have no hope at all of reconciliation with you were it not for the blood of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. Father, we praise you that indeed it does speak better than the blood of Abel. We praise you that men and women around the earth throughout the ages have been reconciled to you and received into fellowship with you because of the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you that indeed he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We give praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.